it is another privilege, and yea, a blessed one at that, that we have this evening to come together on this occasion. Despite the sweltering heat that may exist outside, it at least is somewhat more pleasant and comfortable in here. And as always, we're appreciative of the presence of each and every one, and certainly not only our membership, but the visitors who have come our way this evening. And we are hopeful that our service together will be that which is edifying to each and every one of us. As always, as the Word of God is opened and our thoughts turn in that direction, we each can appreciate the much higher plane that God, in fact, encourages us to consider and to live in a way that is far above the mundane and carnal things that are so much about us from day to day. A very text that is found in Romans 8, verse 6. Tonight, as we continue our series of studies on the book of Exodus, along with our youngsters who are making preparation for the Bible Bowl, we have now for several weeks turned our attention to this second book of the Old Testament. And on that occasion, we have all advanced all the way now to chapters 14 and 15, in fact. Along the way, we've learned many valiant lessons. Lessons that not only were meaningful, of course, for those of that day, but are exceedingly penetrating and pertinent even for you and for me today. So much so that I hope that that same thing will continue, at least if I can bring those lessons or extract them in a way that's proper, that we can find the meaningful things to be found in them on every occasion. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, in the heart of the New Testament, wasn't it the Apostle Paul who said that those things written aforetime were written for our examples? In other words, you and I can learn from that which was written and that which described this people so long in the past. Sometimes the examples are things that are good and we should emulate them, but sometimes the examples are things that were matters for which they were punished. We should learn from their example and not emulate them. And tonight we shall notice a few things that we should strive to do better than they did. The children of Israel, so often they served as circumstances and matters that in fact serve for us today to appreciate that in the church we can learn much from them. You'll not notice upon that slide, this opening slide of the lesson tonight, that it has often been our desire to involve ourselves along with our youngsters in the study of Exodus, be it in the completion of the puzzles, which again, those are available in the foyer, so if you forgot yours this morning or didn't pick up one, well, feel free to avail yourself of them. In addition, encourage our youngsters, pray for the entire enterprise that it may in fact go along and do well. And certainly, as we study the book of Exodus along with them in our lessons on Sunday night, that we also can learn along with them. It is in that regard and in that way tonight we come to the heart of the book. In fact, this particular section surrounding the middle part, chapters 14, 15, 16, along in there, let me invite you to be turning there with me, and we will do that which we have done in times past. Namely, we will strive to rehearse the history first, and then we will extract some lessons that we can apply to our lives today. It would be appropriate, I think, at this point to also say that in each one of the lessons, as we have considered them, I have brought either two or three lessons as I felt the time would permit. That certainly is by far not the only lessons that could have been extracted from it. It's merely I thought that those would be some that were different from those we'd looked at before and would likely be different from those we would see again. But as you've read it, you might have noted other lessons that were particularly meaningful for you. 
as you give some thought to this particular set of chapters tonight, let us look carefully, then beginning at the opening stanza of chapter number 14, 15, and 16. And we'll certainly cast the spotlight more especially on chapters 15 and 16. As we closed our lesson last Sunday evening, we had arrived at the point of appreciating that the tenth plague had just basically become upon them. The death of the firstborn had now taken place, and that ushers us in now to the lesson for the evening tonight. The tenth plague has now happened, and of course, as it did so, the exodus began. The very name of this book is Exodus, and that means a going out a departure from with intent to go to a different location. The people were exiting Egypt, and they were, of course, shortly to journey along that long way that would lead ultimately to that land of Canaan. We notice the institution of the Passover, in which God said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that was one of our lessons last Lord's Day evening, that when He sees the blood of Christ today in your life and mine, He will pass over us with regard to the death angel. As you can well appreciate, there was the sanctification of the firstborn. And in addition, we noticed some various and sundry other things that God had stated with respect to them not the least of which was the leadership. God said that I, through the pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud by day, will provide you with the guidance and the leadership and the direction. And that alone could serve as a dramatic example for us. Are you and I following the standard of the pillar of God, seeking to do only that which He has ordained and set forth, thus not to fall away and pursue our own courses and paths, For just like that would do later in Israel's history, it will lead you nowhere good. It is still the case, isn't it? O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10 verse 23. With those thoughts in mind, we're thus prepared to see the set of events before us tonight. They, of course, come to the Red Sea. Well, as they did that, the route along which they were led by that pillar of cloud and fire was certainly not the most direct route that one would have imagined that would lead them to Canaan. That route that would have taken them by the sea, you see, was infested with Philistines and others who would greatly be individuals of warfare and military action, and they would strive to fight to protect that which was theirs. And God knew all along that the children of Israel were not ready for warfare. They, of course, had just come out of Egyptian bondage. And so it was that here, at this place, God led them to this little encampment, a little placement called Pahahiroth. We notice that here, as you'll see there on that slide, the Egyptians, having changed their mind, caught up with them. Here now was Israel, with the sea in front of them, Mountains on either side and the pursuing Egyptians behind them. They were in desperate situation indeed. So desperate were they that they found themselves in a placement to beseech the aid of something. They called upon Moses. Why have you brought us out here to die like this? Were there not graves in Egypt? And thus Moses, as he petitioned the God of heaven, we well remember that God gave orders to this people orders to not fear. You and I may find that somewhat shocking. Not to fear? How can we not be afraid? But God said, stand still, fear not, and see this day the salvation of the Lord. 
God, of course, being well aware of that which was about to take place, he urged them to, in essence, in the words of Habakkuk 2, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In the words of Isaiah, we read so interestingly in, uh, and rather it's in Psalms 46, verses 9 and 10, Be still and know that I am the Lord. Here was Israel in such a heightened state of anxiety with the Egyptians pursuing, and God said, See this day the salvation of the Lord. Let us notice briefly how historically that salvation unfolded. It had to do, first of all, with the movement of the angel of God. The text informs us that that angel of God moved from being positioned before the children of Israel to, in fact, being positioned behind them. In other words, this pillar that they had so carefully followed in the days preceding, this pillar moved from being in front of them to, in fact, to being positioned behind them. As it did so, this pillar brought tremendous protection in the following way. First of all, it shed light on the children of Israel. It, in essence, directed light in their direction. However, it brought darkness as well as cloudiness to the Egyptian direction. This single pillar shed forth in opposite directions these matters that would have greatly aided the children of Israel in their preparation to cross the Red Sea that night. However, to the Egyptians it brought confusion, darkness, cloudiness, and in that protection we find a lesson that we will examine more carefully a little bit later in our study this evening. You'll notice, though, that over the course of that night, the children of Israel did make their way through the parted Red Sea. And as they did that, some of the notes to carefully appreciate. When they arrived at the other side, a tremendous song of praise they sang, recorded for us in the first 19 verses of chapter 15. This was a song that Moses taught them, and a song that exalted the greatness and power of God and the capability that he had exhibited in their deliverance from their pursuers. It was a tremendous song. And as they sang it, they did so with a joy-filled heart, and they did so with a peacefulness of finally being delivered completely and thoroughly from their oppressors, the Egyptians. In fact, as that chapter closed, they were able to witness the bodies of those Egyptians who had been drowned when the Red Sea waters came back together, taking their lives, and as their corpses washed ashore, Israel now knew that they had been freed by the power of the God of heaven. That kind of power takes us to some of the remaining notes upon that slide. The notes exhibited in the following way. As they proceeded to journey in the wilderness of Shur, three days they went but found no water. In fact, that led to a bit of a crisis because the need for water, just as it would be for us, was certainly a great one. When they did come to Merah and discover water, they found that it was bitter water, and hence it was not usable to them. God replied to their murmur that they had exhibited toward Moses. And in that reply, God gave him information about a wood, a particular log, it would seem, that one could place in that water, and in fact it would be made sweet. As that particular event took place, we are now able to appreciate and see so well that they did come nextly to Elam. And when they came to Elam, they now found not only twelve wells of water, but also seventy palm trees. 
a very passage to which we look this morning in our Bible study session, uh, again this morning at the 9.30 hour. It is interesting as one gives some thought to then this set of historical events and that which unfolded and that which they faced. What might in it be some things that you and I could find useful, helpful, and encouraging even in our lives today? As we begin to look at the first lesson, the first one that you and I will consider tonight, let's revisit Exodus 14, verses 19 and following, and look very carefully and interestingly at this event known as the protection of God, or at least the way in which I have entitled it. Protection from God. It was on that occasion again that we noticed that rather powerful movement of the angel of God from before them to behind them. That alone, I would suggest to each of us, would be something well worthy of our consideration. In our Bible study class, we noted that that was a reference to the pre-incarnate Son of God. You and I are so accustomed to imagining Jesus being born there, of course, in Bethlehem, to Joseph and to Mary. And we particularly imagine that that was the first occasion in which he had any direct dealings with the affairs of this earth. But we should keep in mind that it was not so. Our Savior, being, a poor, of course, the second member of the Godhead, is eternal. He has always existed, and He will always exist. In fact, and in the Old Testament, we are given the precious privilege of witnessing a few of the occasions in which He directly had great bearing on events that took place on earth. One could go all the way back to Genesis 1, and we could tie that to Colossians 1.16. In fact, who was it that created the earth and all the things in it? It was, in fact, the second member of the Godhead. It was the Christ who did that. It was the Son, as you and I would come to call Him. And as the Son did that, it expressly says that for Him was it made. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read on that occasion, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We notice so carefully then that as the second member of the Godhead executed the plans of the first member of the Godhead, he brought into being this earth and all the things related to it. But you'll notice a few of the other events and a few of the other times that he had direct relationship to events on earth. At the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, when there Moses stood before this bush that was on fire, this bush that however was not consumed, you and I learned that that again was a manifestation of the second member of the Godhead, that it was he that spoke with Moses on that occasion. Here we learn another in this scene of that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel. This was a manifestation of the very pre-incarnate Son of God. The majesty and power of that helps us see even to this day the protection that the Son, S-O-N, can offer. Let's give some thought to that in the language of some other passages found in the New Testament. When we ask about the protection available from the Son, notice what was said about Him and of Him in a few passages, especially from the pen of the Apostle John. In the opening chapter of John, we read in verse number 4, especially that Christ is described in language like this, in Him was light. 
in Him was light. And furthermore, in Him was the one that makes available the life, L-I-F-E. The light. Might you recall with me that on that scene in Exodus 14, it was light that that pillar made available to the children of Israel. And so it remains for you and for me today. The light of your life and mine, if it has light at all, will be found in the opportunity and in the implementation of the light of God as seen in the sun. In Him was life. Jesus would later say in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He stated he is and continues to be the light, L-I-G-H-T, of the world. Everywhere today that there is light in this world, it is because of the influence of Christianity. The influence of the Son of God who has vouchsafed to the human family those blessings available from Him. Because it is still the case that all spiritual blessings are to be found in the Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Isn't it an interesting thing then to apply some of that in specifics to our considerations of life today? You'll note that so far we have noted that He offers light and direction and guidance and proper channeling in this life. Isn't it then a tragedy of the highest order that there are those who stumble over Him? They maybe are aware of the Christ and yet they stumble over what He came to offer. In fact, the New Testament had told us that that was going to happen. In John 1, again, notice verses 7 and 8. It is there stated again that though He came to give light, He nonetheless was still the darkness to many because they refused to submit to Him and they refused to acknowledge and to honor Him. Later we learn in 1 Peter 2 that there are still those that stumble over the chief stone of God. He still, you see, is the chief cornerstone. And it is an incredible catastrophe that there are those that stumble over Him. God didn't send His Son for man to stumble over Him, but yet there are some who do. They stumble because they would prefer their own way as opposed to His. They stumble over Him because the Lord's way is too constrictive and too narrow and too demanding for them. They would much prefer to do what they want, when they want, the way they want. But God will not tolerate a co-equal. Those bumper stickers that say, God is my co-pilot, are completely wrong. God has no co-pilot. If He isn't the pilot, plain and simple, then there's a great tragedy and mistake in life. He is the pilot. And so as we give thought to one of the last thoughts on that slide... Listen to some of the ways that Jesus uttered His desire to be the protective one and to offer to those about Him the light and the protective custody of the goodness of God's blessings. Wasn't it to Jerusalem in Matthew 23, especially verse 37, that on that occasion Jesus said, As a hen does her chicks, I would have gathered thee under my wings. But you would not. The Lord invited Jerusalem. And he offered to her the protection from the onslaught of the wrath of God, but she refused. And that onslaught would come 40 years later. Perhaps another example would be in the very character of that Christian armor that you and I are admonished to adorn in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. 
Put on the whole armor of God, we're commanded, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Isn't it the case that as one reads about the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, as I mentioned, having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, making note of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and having our loins girt about with truth, all of that you and I are admonished and even commanded to put on so that we would be able to stand, and having done all to stand. Might we ask, those are all protective things with the exception of the sword. Are we adorned with that? We should be, and each day laboring to increase the protection we have using those things provided by the Son of God. I thought I would close that particular slide with a question that is pretty common, I would think. If you watch much television, you're familiar with it. It's that famous insurance commercial. Are you in good hands? Are you and I in good hands, then, of the protective custody of the Son of God? If we aren't, then we aren't in good hands at all, no matter whose other's hands we may be in. Thus, the protective custody of God, it is a sobering thought, isn't it? But it takes us to another question and another consideration tonight. This other question takes us to Exodus fifteen twenty four. Isn't it interesting that near the close of that chapter, we learn a descriptive of the children of Israel that will frequently be a descriptive of them, murmuring. We passed it by earlier somewhat quickly, but we noticed that when they had traveled three days in the wilderness of Shur and had found no water, that they did come, of course, finally to that place of Merah. And though there was water there, it was bitter. And all along that way, we learn in verse number 24 that the people murmured against Moses. Murmured. M-U-R, M-U-R is the verb, murmur. And isn't it amazing as one gives thought to this characteristic and what it was about the circumstance that led them to that kind of behavior. I should quickly, I think, point out that they will be guilty of murmuring a few times yet in the future. But as we give thought tonight to this initial instance of that word in the Old Testament, might we also make note of this complaining, this grumbling, this murmuring that was descriptive of them here? And might we use that to help us even in our walk with Christ today? As surely as we pointed it out in the Bible class this morning, the murmuring did not fix the problem here. Nor will it fix their problems later when they are without food. Nor will it fix the problems later when they meet the difficulties of Numbers 13. Because in the same way, it did not fix their problems then. It does not, of course, fix our problems today. When it comes to the work of the church... Or the assemblies, as it involves our worship or Bible study hours, murmuring does not fix any of the issues that you and I might consider. When you and I find the occasion to do so, do we check our tongue, or are we much quicker to murmur against the Bible teacher, or to murmur against the song leader, or to murmur against the man that led us in prayer? The prayer's too long, the song's too slow, and the sermon's too dull and boring. Can't they do any better than that? Maybe you should try it, Minion. Rather than being so quick to murmur, if you have constructive thoughts, help us with it. I know I speak for myself, and I'm sure for the others as well. We're all interested to improve our worship in the ways that we can. 
and many of our men have met, at least last Lord's Day, for that leadership training class in which our goal and our effort is not to take the glory to ourselves, but to strive to improve our worship and the way that we at Pippin can go about our, our business. You see, the murmuring and complaining on occasions like that doesn't benefit anybody. In fact, it only causes an, a black eye on the church itself. How do those at my place of business or yours, at my place of employment or yours, how do they react when on Monday the best we can do is cut up the preacher and everyone else there because we have nothing constructive or positive that we can think of to say? It is something to consider, isn't it? On the occasion of tomorrow, do we in fact lift high the church and to in fact help others to see the goodness of what goes on here? We should try to do that. You'll notice some of the lessons that I have stated there near the bottom are something each of us can benefit from. As you have constructive thoughts to share with myself or a song leader or one of our elders on some of the work that is done in their work, may we ever appreciate the desire to accomplish that constructive criticism in love and in kindness, never with a desire to bring someone down. For we in Christ encourage each other, Remember in Hebrews 10, 24 to 26, exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Our love for each other leads us to exhort and to encourage. And when there is an occasion for correction, an occasion, in fact, to help someone by encouraging them, it ought not be by murmuring. It should be with a kind and tactful confrontation of them. Have you thought about this? If I can help, please call on me. I'll be happy to assist you in any way that I can. A comment like that would be so well received, and it would lead to an understanding that there is a desire to lead to improvement rather than a murmuring and to slander someone with backbiting and talking behind their back. That, in fact, is is condemned, isn't it, in Proverbs 26. In verses 15 and following of that chapter, we are told that just as surely as the fire goes out when the wood burns up, so too where there is no tail-bearer, the strife will cease. It is a beautiful parallel, isn't it? And it helps us see today how that when there's gossip and tail-bearing and when there's murmuring behind the back, that doesn't lead to the solution to any problem. But rather near the bottom of that slide, the peacefulness with which you and I can pursue godliness in our lives and the encouragement in the lives of others leads us to notice verses like this. As much as life in you, live peaceably with all men, Romans twelve eighteen. That verse is only echoed in the sentiments of Proverbs 15, 1. A soft answer turneth away, turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up strife. If you and I wish then to cause strife in this organization or any other, one of the quickest ways to do it is use a grievous word or two. Use a word that has behind it all the angst of difficulty and all the power and majesty of the holier-than-thou attitude with a little bit of murmuring thrown in, and it will lead to some trouble almost guaranteed. But isn't it beautiful to see how that there were some instances in the Word of God where difficulties arose, but it was handled in a godly way. In Acts 15, beginning in verse 36, we encounter on that occasion a circumstance in which the Apostle Paul was in strong desire to continue his efforts 
to preach and to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Christ, the unsearchable riches found therein. However, there was a difficulty with which he was confronted. Paul was of a desire to, you see, take John Mark along with him on the next missionary journey. But there were others who did not wish John Mark to go because on the first journey he had not stuck with them. He had traveled with them a while, but then he had turned back and gone to a different place. Paul was concerned that he might, in fact, do something similar again, perhaps. Perhaps he had other concerns, but for whatever reason, John Mark, he did not wish to be his companion. Thankfully, there were others who did wish him to be their companion. And notice what happened. Barnabas took John Mark, and they went on their way and did great work for the cause of the Master. Silas accompanied Paul. They went their way and also did great work for the Master. The cause of God was not hindered. Even though there was this disagreement and even a contention so sharp that Paul was unwilling to accept John Mark in going. May you and I not learn that rather than murmur, Barnabas and Paul handled it the right way. And the work of God was nonetheless done. Today, even if there's disagreement, maybe you don't see things the way that I do, or maybe I don't see things the way that you do or one of our elders. There is still work that can be done. And may we allow that work to be accomplished, and may we do it with all the peacefulness that the people of God here deserve, so that God's work would not be hindered. As we can see here, the murmuring, didn't help the children of Israel. And we see no murmuring in the life of either Barnabas or Paul. As we look forward to perhaps one other lesson tonight, the one to be found a little bit later in this same reading. This one I've entitled, Testing by God. And it is the lesson text in verses 25 and 26 before us near the close of chapter 15. The language that's here before us in the King James translation reads as follows. And he cried unto the Lord, that's Moses, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And I thought it would be interesting for us to give some thought to a more extended discussion of what does it mean when it says, God proved them. As we noted this morning in the Bible class hour, that means he tested them. And you and I also noted the interesting conclusion that on so many occasions, Israel failed the test. I know that it's our hope tonight, all of us, that we do not fail the test. Whatever test that God administers, you and I want to pass it. We want to be successful. We want to emerge victorious. We want to be triumphant. We want to pass the test. When a teacher gives a test at school, at least it isn't very many students who seem to find enjoyment in failing it. I have encountered a few who seem to care so little it doesn't matter to them, but at least those who have any studiousness about them, it bothers them if they do poorly, and they want to do well. All of us, no doubt want to do well on being attested by God. Let's learn then briefly just a few lessons about the way God tested them and perhaps use that to help us see how He can test us as well. As you'll notice near the top of that slide, 
God particularly tested their faithfulness in the following language, verse 26 of that same chapter. In Inasmuch as it says, He proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in His sight, and wilt give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. God also, you see, just as surely as He tested ancient Israel, He can allow you and I to be tested as well. Now, that does not mean that God brings temptations into your life and mine. For we learn elsewhere that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man, James 1, verses 13 to 14. God does not tempt you and me to do wrong. However, can He allow difficulties to come into your life and mine? Can He allow, by the natural order of the progression of things, can He allow things to happen that are unpleasant, that are uncomfortable, and that can even serve as a challenge to your faith and mine? We each know the answer to that to be yes. All of us have been there. The company is beginning to have bad times and layoffs are in the future. What if I'm laid off from my job? How will I take care of my family? How will you take care of yours? That can happen. Does God directly cause and bring it? Does He allow it to occur? He certainly allows it. Those kinds of matters are under the things that take place in this life, aren't they? Sickness and illness, can it come your way and mine? Don't we know the answer to that to be yes? Perhaps there's an automobile accident and your car is greatly damaged and for some period of time you don't have the transportation that would make things more convenient. Perhaps there's other difficulties that can come your way and mine. We know it all too well. Can those serve sometimes as a test of your faith and mine? Certainly it can. Will you and I emerge victorious by relying on God's promises to take care of us? Or will we buckle beneath the load of the pressure? Will we perhaps slide away from God? Our faithfulness will lapse. The church will become unimportant to us. Our brothers and sisters in Christ and our fellowship with them will suddenly not mean much and we'll lapse into full control of Satan. It can happen. We've each seen it in the lives of perhaps some that we know. Those who once were faithful members of the body of Christ, some event perhaps precipitated a slide down a long road that led to nowhere good. No longer do they seem to have any interest in things of God. They don't adorn the building at the time of the services. And when you approach them about it in defense, they do wish to not to speak of it at all. Their heart has become hard. They no longer have an interest in that which can save their precious soul. You'll notice that God proved ancient Israel. And I mentioned earlier that on a number of occasions they failed the test. Thankfully, there were some times they did pass the test. But it usually that required them to have a very strong and powerful leader like they later would have in Joshua. They did pass the test when Joshua was their leader. But there were many other times that they failed it miserably. Despite the fact Moses was their leader here, they failed it. Isn't it interesting for us to ask, what about your life and mine? Some thoughts I would ask you to consider. 
how do you and I approach those difficulties and tests in life? The Hebrew writer addresses this very point, and he in fact pulls your attention and mind to ask, how does a father deal with his children? Just as surely as a father in love chastens them, corrects them, strives to lead them in the way that's good, notice that the Hebrew writer says God is a loving father and he will do the same. If God loves us, he will allow us to be tested. He will do that so that it will lead to our strength and our greater fortitude that we will be even stronger for him in days ahead. Isn't it still that way? When you and I are tested and we emerge victorious, having relied on the goodness of God, for example, we are stronger having endured the test than before we ever, in in fact, experienced it. We read that, don't we, in James 1, verses 2 through 5, and also Romans 5, verses 2 through 4. In each instance, we notice that this matter that's called testing leads to patience, Patience leads to endurance, and endurance leads to steadfastness. It is an irrevocable chain of truthfulness, doesn't it? Testing will lead to ultimately our patience, and along the way we'll gain steadfastness. Does that then describe your life and mine tonight? Have you emerged victorious, and are you now thankful that you did so, and are now able in strength to perhaps help others who are in fact experiencing the same thing? It can often mean a great deal when to a brother or sister you can say, I've been in your shoes. I know what you're dealing with. Let me help you. If I can be there for you, this is what worked for me. Maybe it'll help you as well. Sometimes one of the greatest things in Christ is the capability of sharing those experiences that were of such great benefit to us in the days that have preceded. As you'll also notice on that same slide, The end result I mentioned of greater strength, greater fortitude and righteousness. Those very words are found in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 7. When you and I studied the Hebrew letter a few weeks back, we noticed that in chapter 12, we highlighted the encouragement to steadfastness. Now we can, in some sense, complete that puzzle. That encouragement is found in the fortitude that's gained by properly viewing the testing that you and I see in life. Perhaps sometimes you and I are too quick to throw up our hands and say, God, why did you bring this on me? When we might be a little wiser to perhaps wait a little while, and then in hindsight we might say, God, I'm glad that you brought that my way for this reason. I now can see the lesson you were wanting me to learn. I now can appreciate that in that difficulty, I'm able to see what I would never have seen before. I can see that this issue was really not what I first thought it was. Maybe in wisdom, you and I can in maturity come to see sometimes things that will look that way. We are reminded in Romans 8.28, that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. You and I can rest assured that that is the case spiritually, that all things in a spiritual way will work for our good. We at the moment may not see it and we may not understand it then. Quite likely, as the days roll by, we may come to understand the lesson that God was wishing us to learn and to indelibly imprint on the ink of our heart. 
as you give some thought to what's mentioned at the bottom of that slide, perhaps it would be entirely in order to mention that there is eternal life promised to the victor. Don't ever give in to Satan. Don't ever give in to him. It doesn't matter how difficult the times may come. To the young people and to us who are older, don't ever give in to him. Because rest assured, he doesn't have your best interest at heart. Whatever difficulties like he brought into Job's life in Job chapters 1 and 2, touching his family, his possessions, and the other things of his life, Job was in such dire strait that his friends were absolutely sure that it's because of his sin when it was never for that reason. God allowed Job to be tested, but Job emerged victorious. And along the way, he learned some great, great lessons. Perhaps in the days ahead, we may look interestingly into Job time and again and learn that just like Job learned a few of those lessons, you and I can learn them too. But tonight, in the time that we've had, our time has passed us by. We've learned tonight about a few things, three lessons built on these chapters, and we can summarize them like this. Our study has again been a very touching one in the sense that we've seen the children of Israel arrive now at a place where there's some difficulty. They indeed were brought out of Egypt, but now without any water, they were ready to murmur. May you and I be wise enough not to be so quick to be given to murmuring, but may we note the protective custody of God, and might we also appreciate that very last lesson that we had seen, that the testing that God allows us to endure, may we use it to bring about even better goodness in our lives. Tonight it might be there's one or more here that needs to respond publicly to the call of invitation. That call is extended so beautifully in 2 Thessalonians 2.14. And it is in fact such a great thing. You will never have a greater calling than this one. Have you responded to it? Have you in fact turned your life over to the one who wants to be the one protecting you day by day? Put your hand into his and don't ever let go. Tonight, if we could help you to put your hand in His, it happens initially at baptism. Because you need to believe Him to be the Son of God. That's commanded in Mark 16, 16. You need to repent of the sins in your life, Acts 2, 38. You need to confess Him as the Master of your life, as the Son of God, Matthew 10, 32 and 3. And finally, to be baptized for the remission of sins. It is what saves you, 1 Peter 3, 21. If tonight we could assist you in that way, we'd be happy to assist and to help. If you have become a Christian, though, and you've known some of these blessings, but you have forgotten them, it is true that as human beings we can just get lazy and forget sometimes. But if you have, don't you want to come back to where you once were? Don't you want to enjoy the blessings of faithfulness again? Don't you want to know the protective custody and the being in the good hands of the Christ? If we could help you come back to that place tonight, it requires that you repent of those public sins and confess them before the hearing of others that they will know that you've made a change. That's stated in 2 Corinthians 10 as well as in James chapter 5. If we could pray tonight with you and for you, all we would ask is that you let us know. And if we could be of assistance in either of those ways, we'd be happy to help. We would ask you to make that known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.